The book you hold in your hands, I hope that most of you are holding a book in your hands, says of itself that it's inspired by God. All of it is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, that is, for reproof, that is, for telling you you're wrong, for correction, that is, for turning you in the right direction, for instruction in righteousness, that is, in telling you how to live. All of Scripture is profitable for those things that the man of God may be perfect. That book is given to me to preach to you, and it's able to make me perfect if I'll preach the whole thing. At least it will lead me in that direction. Human frailty being what it is is going to cause problems from time to time in the ministry. But all of Scripture is given for our profit. I read in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. Do we believe that about the book of Esther? Amen. Do you want me to tell you something strange about the book of Esther? The book of Esther doesn't have the word Jesus in it. The book of Esther doesn't have the word Christ in it. The book of Esther doesn't have the word Lord in it. The book of Esther doesn't have the word God in it. And skeptics have tried to rule the book of Esther doesn't belong in the canon of Scripture. I say blankety-blank, blank-blank. I say Esther belongs in the canon of Scripture. Why? Why do I think Esther belongs in the canon of Scripture? By faith in the Jews. By faith in the Jews. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, after having run the Jews into the ground by saying that only those who believe in Christ with a regenerate heart are the true Jews, the apostle answers a question that's going to be raised. What profit then is there of circumcision? I mean, what profit then is there to be a Jew? And Paul said, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God committed His Holy Scriptures to the Jews. That is the most important thing they had, was the Word of God. Chiefly. What was the advantage of being a Jew? Chiefly. Was it because you came through the Red Sea? Chiefly. Was it because your David killed a Goliath? Chiefly. Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. What if we didn't have this book? What if we didn't have this book? I mean, I might be up here this morning reading from Norman Vincent Peale. And how would that turn you on if we didn't have this book? Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. And the Jews have always had Esther as part of their canon because they love the book of Esther because it describes God's dealings with the Persian Empire for their benefit. And when Jesus Christ spoke of the Scriptures in Luke 24, 44, and 45, and referred to the books of Moses and the Law and the Prophets, he didn't say, except the book of Esther. But even though it doesn't have the name God or Lord or Jesus or Christ, there are some things there for us to learn. How do we know that? From 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, which I just gave you, all of this book has profit. Now, I just finished, for our three visitors this morning, I just finished a series on the mind of the Lord that God, in regeneration, gives us a mind so that we can think like God if we'll exercise that mind. 
In 1 Corinthians 2.16, the Bible says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Well, no one has, naturally. But the rest of that verse says, But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ if we're born again, children of God that aren't grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. We can think the way God does. And I remember last Sunday evening when I preached on how you can develop that thinking ability to think the way God does is to saturate yourself with this book. And so we're going to dive into the book of Esther because there are, even though God may not be mentioned by name, his dealings are manifest in the book so that we can see how God deals and how God's people behave to bring our understanding of God's ways up to our conscious level. That's why we're dealing with the book of Esther, and there's going to be profit for us there. The book of Esther is going to teach us primarily two things. It's not going to teach us much in the way of prophecy about Jesus Christ. It's going to teach us God's providential dealings with his people. We are going to see God's tender care, his defense, and his preservation of his people, even though they are in terrible circumstances. We're also going to see some practical lessons on how we ought to live as we study the lives of Vashti, Esther, Haman, Mordecai, Ahasuerus, and so forth. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about some of their behavior and why it's recorded for us. There were four world empires the Bible recognizes. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was their first and great king. Belshazzar was their last king. Then came the Medes and the Persians. Darius and Cyrus ruled for two years jointly, and then Cyrus the Persian took over. After the Persians, which lasted about 120 years, how long did Babylon last? Not much more than 70. God raised Babylon up to scourge Israel. And then he was through with them, and he punished them with the Medes and the Persians. For about 120 years, the Persian Empire lasted, and he raised up another man, a fast-track young Turk. And what was his name? He wasn't a Turk. What was Alexander the Great, who overthrew the Persian Empire? And then the Greek Empire was raised up, and how long did it last in its height? <laughs> about 10 years. And then it, Alexander the Great, died and had to disband that empire to his four generals, and it was never the same after that. They warred with each other. And then the Roman Empire took care of them in the days of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and others who put an end to the Greek Empire. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 11. Keep your finger at Esther if you're there. If not, just go to Daniel 11 with me. We need to establish some background. We could go jump into the book of Esther and run quickly to Haman and Mordecai, but is that going to help you the next time you read Esther and try to fit it in with other events in your Bible? I want you to understand this book that God's given us as much as I possibly can. That's why we cram so much into two hours of Bible reading. But we want to understand this book and see it fit together. Now, Daniel lived during what period of time? Nebuchadnezzar's time, the time of Darius, the time of Cyrus. Daniel was alive, so he is a contemporary of the book of Ezra that we read earlier this morning, 
And he's also almost a contemporary of Esther, as we're going to see. But look at Daniel 11. Yeah, I'm going to have to re rely on your memories this morning from when I preached through this book. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Is that Daniel? Excellent. No, it isn't. It's an angel. The angel speaking in the last few verses of chapter 10. Because this is one vision. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are one vision. And verse 1 of chapter 10 tells us when the vision took place. Look back at 10.1. In the third year of Cyrus king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. Notice, it's the third year of Cyrus, and Cyrus reigned after Darius. So when we come to 11.1, and it says, also I, also means he's already told you something else about himself, and he's adding to it. And what else he told you is found in the last few verses of verse 10. Verse 20. Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. It's talking about the angel. So verse 1 is an angel that stood and confirmed Darius in his kingdom. I mean, who helped Darius overthrow the most powerful and glorious empire, which was the Babylonian? This angel. I stood and confirmed and strengthened Darius. Now, verse 2, And now will I show thee the truth. Now, that, that helps too, doesn't it? It's still the angel speaking in the first person. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. Who's king right now? In Persia. Cyrus. Cyrus. We're in the third year of Cyrus, according to 10.1. Darius wasn't a Persian. Darius was the Mede. Cyrus is king, and the angel says to Daniel, yet. What does that mean? Count, the one, count Cyrus, or are there three more? Yet there shall, future tense, stand up three kings in Persia. Three more kings. Cyrus is one. Then two, three, four. And the angel goes on to say, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece, Grecia. Cyrus was the first king of Persia. The next king is Cambyses. You can read about him in your encyclopedia if you need to. The third king was another Darius, Darius Histaspes. You can forget that if you want. I won't, I won't care. But the third king was Darius Histaspes, and I'm going to be referring to him. I'll tell you right now. Darius Histaspes is known as Darius in the Bible. He's known as Ahasuerus of the book of Esther, and he's known as Artaxerxes of the book of Nehemiah. You say, well, how can a man have three names? Well, let's cut through that higher criticism real quick. I'm known as John, J-O-H-N, John, J-O-N, and Jonathan. Easy, right? Robert, Bob, and Bobby? I mean, cut that baloney. But let me give you a better explanation. Artaxerxes is a name like Pharaoh. All the Persian kings were called 
Xerxes. Do you know what that word means? Shah. See, Iran is Persia. Okay? It means Shah. Xerxes means Shah. Arta. Xerxes means the great Shah. It's like calling Pharaoh. You know, we could call him Tut. Was there ever a Pharaoh named Tut? He was Tut. He was king. And he was Pharaoh, wasn't he? Artaxerxes is the great Shah. You can read about him in Nehemiah. He's also called Ahasuerus. And he's also called Darius. His Staspes. History confirms all this that the Word of God is telling us about. There were only four Persian kings of any significance. Cyrus, he's here. Daniel's writing during his reign. Cambyses, and then Darius Hystaspes, also Ahasuerus of Esther, also Artaxerxes of Nehemiah, who reigned for 36 years. And it's interesting, when you get to Nehemiah, you find Nehemiah talking about the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. And then the fourth king was Xerxes. That was his principal name, Xerxes. And it says that he's going to be a very rich king, and he was. An extremely rich king. If you read about the Persian Empire, Xerxes was the richest one. And he raised an army of 1.8 million men that he took into Greece and lost. And lost. And what does the Bible tell us right here? He shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Now, does that sound like a big army or a small army? This, the word of God is plain. He'll stir up all against Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. Who is that? Alexander the Great. The Bible is so plain if you knew anything about history. You say, but I ought to be able to read the Bible without knowing about history. How can you read the Bible without knowing about grammar? Don't give me that baloney. You know, this idea of the Bible and the Bible alone, you're going you're gonna to know nothing. Do you know how you read the Bible? By knowing English grammar. If you hadn't gone to school and didn't know about language, you wouldn't be able to understand your Bible. God expects you to know something outside the Bible. That's what he gave you a mind for. And he gave prophecy to be confirmed by history. So we've got these four kings, and I'm, I'm spending time on it because I want you to know where Esther fits in to Ezra on one side and Daniel describing these four kings of the Persian Empire right here. Now let's go to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1. Now we read that earlier this morning in Ezra chapter 1 that Cyrus asked and offered to all those Jews who wanted to return to Jerusalem to do so. But he also said that if some of the Jews wanted to remain, they could. But that if they did remain, all the residents of that area were to be taxed and to give. And that wasn't a free will offering because it's distinguished from a free will offering in the passage. You're to give for the building of that temple in Jerusalem. So we've got Jews now back in Jerusalem working on the temple with Zerubbabel, with Ezra part of the time, and Nehemiah is going to join them, which we'll find very interesting how he joins them. And Esther will tie into Nehemiah very nicely. But 
There are some Jews in Jerusalem, and the rest are back in Babylon and spread throughout the Babylonian Empire, which is now the Persian Empire. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, quote, uh, parentheses, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over in 107 and 20 provinces. Now, if you were to turn to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, you need not, I'll just tell you what's there. Daniel was made head over 120 provinces under Darius. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, there are 120 provinces with their princes in the days of Daniel. After Darius, then there was Cyrus, then there was Cambyses, which history tells us took Ethiopia. Then there was Darius Hystaspes, which history tells us took India. Now, I could spend an hour this morning with overhead charts and prove to you that Darius Hystaspes is Ahasuerus is Artaxerxes. If you don't make that assumption, let me just put it this way, and nothing makes sense in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, or Daniel. Because you've got Mordecai living to be about 200 years old if you don't pick Darius. Because the next Persian king that, that, that reigned at least 32 years is too far down the line. Because we're going to learn about Mordecai in this book. He was carried captive into Babylon. And men didn't live to be 200 years old in the days of Esther. God had shortened their span somewhat. I mean, David wrote a good while before this and said that man's days are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength, eighty. Not if by reason of strength, two hundred. It's ridiculous. And, and you don't need to worry about that much. But if you ever try to read anything about the book of Esther, you're going to run into a chainsaw with these guys all corrupting who you're dealing with. You've got three different kings in their opinion because there's three different names. But you don't have that luxury with the short Persian Empire. Now, the Bible tells us a little bit about Ahasuerus here, doesn't he? Doesn't it? In parentheses, that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127. You can go read any good encyclopedia, and it will tell you that Darius Hystaspes, who is this Ahasuerus, took India. And Cambyses before him took Ethiopia. So we can lock on to where we're at chronologically. And there's 127 provinces because they've expanded the empire geographically from what Cyrus took over from Belshazzar. Now it says in verse 2 that in those days, that is the days of Ahasuerus, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. Now you can read about Shushan in Nehemiah 1.1, where Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer in the palace in Shushan. You can read about Shushan in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 2, where Daniel waited on Darius and Cyrus in Shushan the palace. When a king would take over a nation, he generally wouldn't keep the same capital because he wanted to build a palace and a city for his own name. Now, Nebuchadnezzar got all the credit for Babylon. And while Babylon remained a, a, an important city, Darius and Cyrus and others removed the palace to Shushan which is a Persian name, if you've read anything Persian at all. Shushan, where they had their palace and their beautiful city for their own name 
and for their own kingdom. And in this city, he is sitting on his throne, reigning. And notice that in this place, it's called the power of Persia. Verse 3, let's get down to verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media. Now elsewhere in the Bible, it's usually called the Medes and the Persians. But by this time, the Persians have been, have taken the back seat to the Persians. The Medes have taken the back seat, and the Persians are stated first in the scriptures. Subtle little things like that are important because while Darius started out in Daniel 5, it's now Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede, is gone. And the importance has switched to Persia, and from here on it's known as the Persian Empire. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persian media, their government, the nobles and princes of the provinces, 127 of them, being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, for a half a year, 180 days, they had a big time in Shushan the palace, the Shushan where the palace was located while he showed all his wealth and the excellent kingdom that the Persians had. Now you say that sounds rather proud. It may have been. It may have been. Here's what I'm going to do in the first chapter of Esther. When you read the first chapter of Esther, we're going to come across some events we've got to make a decision, or we don't make a decision. Either we try to exonerate Ahasuerus, or we condemn Ahasuerus, or we ignore making any judgment at all. And I'm generally going to try to exonerate him. When the Word of God records an event and doesn't criticize the event and goes on to bless the man who participated in the event and the rest of Scripture can be used to justify the event, guess what I do? Justify the event. It's not at all unusual for a kingdom to show its riches and for God to honor it. What did the queen of Sheba view when she came to Jerusalem? Did Solomon not let her into the palace so that he could remain modest and humble? Or did he let her see everything, and when it was all told, her breath was taken from her, and she said, it's twice as good as I'd ever been told? Isn't that what happened? Now, I don't find fault with Ahasuerus for what he's doing here. It is a common practice for governments to invite their dignitaries in for a big celebration and for them all to get together. I mean, President Reagan does invite some of his cabinet members to Camp David from time to time, doesn't he? That's one of his palaces in one sense of the word. Now, they don't last 180 days. I think we'd impeach him if he was at Camp David that long. But they do the same thing, don't they? And Solomon did it also, and the Lord didn't say a thing to him. When you do it out of pride, the Lord says something. Hezekiah tried it once out of pride. Hezekiah invited some dignitaries from Babylon in. He took them into the treasury and showed them how rich he was. As soon as they left, God said to Hezekiah, Why would you do that? Because you did that, those Babylonians are going to come back to take all that wealth. And did they? Yes, they did with Nebuchadnezzar. But nothing is said like that here. Verse 5, 
And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. You know, after waiting on the dignitaries for 180 days, I'd guess the servants there and get a seven-day feast, wouldn't you say? So they're included. All the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small. Now, princes of provinces aren't small. This is including everyone. It's a wrap-up celebration there in Shushan. Seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, try to visualize the beauty of this place as we read the next couple verses. Where were white, green, and blue Persian rugs. Oh, I mean hangings. Now, haven't we all seen oriental rugs from Persia? Go look and see which ones command the premiums. Hangings. I wonder what those hangings look like. Do you, do you wonder? I don't at all. Where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver. Friends, they didn't sit on chairs. They had lazy boys. So you could recline. They called them beds. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Can you imagine a garden courtyard of red and white and blue and black marble with Persian rugs hanging all around it from marble pillars on rings of silver on linen cords? Sounds nice. Does it match with anything historians tell us about the Persian Empire? It surely does. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another. They weren't two alike. I mean, they had some fine craftsmen who made them all different. And royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. According to the state of the king means they didn't run out. You know, sometimes when we visit with each other, there's, there's a real fine dessert. And you eat one piece, then you eat two pieces, and you say, could I have a third and she's, the hostess is out. That's according to the state of most of our members. You know what? I'm trying to tell you what this means here. We usually run out. According to the state of the king means you don't run out. There was plenty. There was abundance there. You know, you have kids over, and you give them a pop to drink, and then they come in later and say, can I have another one? Well, we don't have any more. Can you settle for water? Kings don't do that. Kings don't offer you water the second time around. They guarantee and make sure they have enough. Do you know what would happen to the man in charge of wine if the king's guest didn't have enough to drink? He'd be fertilizing the garden. I mean, that's the way kings operate. It's according to the state of a king. A king never has to apologize for not having enough. That's the state of a king. Now I want you to start witnessing the righteous character in a way of Ahasuerus in verse 8. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Now, this king had a law 
a Persian law that there would be no compelling to drink, so that no one would be forced or compelled, or would there be anything that, that would lead to drunkenness? None would be compelled to drink. What normally happens when you get 127 dignitaries together with the king? They all want to offer a toast. Now, when you've got 127 princes offering a toast, what can happen? I mean, someone might be there who can't take 127 toasts. And notice the law that was passed in the Persian Empire. None would compel to drink. I mean, you could clink your glass or your vessel and not drink anything. I'm trying to give you an illustration of what's being said here. None were compelled to drink. You know, there have been civilizations like the Roman Empire. When their dignitaries got together, they drank themselves into drunken stupors and oblivion because they could afford to. They didn't have to get up in the morning and work like the common man, and they had wine in abundance so they drink themselves into oblivion. It's been a characteristic trait of a lot of kings, but not Ahasuerus. Can you imagine that law? Now, I like Persian law. Do you know what it says about sodomites? It says if you happen upon a sodomite in the act, you had the right to kill him on the spot. We also know that about Persian law. And I'd like to see that law in the United States. But anyway, back to verse 8. I find that interesting that they weren't compelled to drink. Now verse 9. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. While Ahasuerus is whining and dining, the 127 princes and others, both great and small, Vashti the queen has a feast for the women going on in the house while they're out in the courtyard of the garden. Verse, verses 10 through 12, though, after having identified Ahasuerus, describes some domestic trouble in the family. Verse 10, on the seventh day, this is the last day of this seventh-day feast, culminating 187 days total. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now, we either need to condemn Ahasuerus, exonerate him, or just forget any judgment at all. And while I'm going to emphasize exonerating him, the, the important point is not exonerating him, although we're going to do with the Word of God that everything that took place here is scriptural. Everything. But that's not the important point. The important point is the lessons we can learn from this little event in the family life of Ahasuerus and Vashti. Now the first thing we need to realize in verse 10, when it says on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, does that statement mean the heart of the king was drunk with wine? No. 
Now, where would you go to establish the fact that it doesn't mean drunkenness? The book of Ruth, chapter 3 and verse 7, you need not turn there. When was Ruth to approach Boaz? What, when did Boaz lay down out there in the house that was in the field? When his heart was merry. A merry heart is not a sin. A, merry, a heart that is merry as a result of the appropriate moderate use of wine is not sin. In fact, that's why God created that wine. Let's review that point this morning. Look at Psalm 104 and verse 15. Why did God create wine? He did not create it for its taste. And I'm thankful for that because I don't like it. He didn't create it for its taste. He created it for its effect. Why did God create bread? Well, let's read it. Psalm 104, verse 14. Speaking of God, it says, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's face. Now, some of you women put oil of Olay on your face, I'm sure. And if you don't in here, somewhere they do. And why do women put oil on their face? And why did God create oil to put on the face of human beings? To cause the face to shine, especially when you live in the dry climate of the Middle East. You put oil on your face to give it some moisture so that it shines and doesn't look like a dried-out prune. God made oil for that purpose. Why did he make bread? To make strong the heart of man. Anyone who's done any recent reading on the importance of di a fire, a fiber in your diet will understand that God told you something here that you didn't need 20th century medicine for. Do you know what? If you want a strong heart, you ought to eat lots of bread. Now, you can go read a medical journal from the AMA who are finally admitting that, di that dietary fiber is essential to protect against arteriosclerosis and other complications of the heart. Why do other nations not have the degree of heart disease we have in America? Because they eat lots of bread, and friends, that bread isn't the kind you go into the grocery store and squeeze, ladies, because it's so soft. It's got fiber in it, and they don't have heart disease. You know, before 1900, when we came up with our witty inventions of processing wheat, there wasn't heart disease in the United States either. In 1900, medical journals didn't even have the words heart attack in them. Why? We ate bread back in those days. I mean, when you came home, you weren't eating KFC chicken. That's Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it wasn't churches either. And you didn't stop at Max and get the... Listen, there isn't enough fiber in a hundred of their buns to keep a mouse alive. That, those buns have been so processed that, that you put it in your mouth and it melts, doesn't it? Things have changed. But I want to preach. I know I tell you about a lot of sermons I want to preach. I had a brother over last night who said, now I understand. I was talking to him for a few minutes about how I study. And he said, now I understand why you always have these sermons you want to preach. 
You always have things you want to preach, and I do. I want to preach a sermon on what the Bible says about physical health. It says a lot about what to eat and what to do for physical health. My point from this verse is this. We know that bread is good for the heart of man. The Bible says that, and that's the reason God created it. We know that wine cheers the heart of man. I mean, why do people drink wine? It cheers their hearts. And the Bible tells us that other places which we're going to look, and God made that wine that cheers the heart. We know that oil on faces will keep skin soft, smooth, and shiny looking. Now, ladies, it doesn't talk about looking greasy. I mean, you don't walk around with it laying on your face, but it makes your face look better. And men, if your skin's dried out. Now, in this climate here, you don't need to worry about it. But in the Middle East, sometimes some of you may have to, but it depends on your skin. Notice these practical benefits of things God made for us. Let's go on. We've got to establish this point on wine. Look at Judges chapter 9. I mean, if preaching this within five miles of Bob Jones University, there may be a body out there in the middle of that holy ground, in the middle of their fountains. That body is Bob Jones Sr. He could be rolling over right now preaching this. That's okay. Who cares what Bob Jones Sr. thinks about wine? What does the Bible say? Judges chapter 9 and verse 13 is a parable. Is a parable. But the fig tree, let's get verse 13, and the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Now, there's a verse that says wine cheers the heart of God and man. Now, God doesn't need to sit in heaven and drink wine to be cheered. But God created that wine, which cheers the heart of man, which we just read in Psalm 104 and verse 15, which said it makes glad the heart of man. Let's look also at Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 19. Ecclesiastes 10:19. I have told you people before that one of the easiest subjects to discuss with a lot of people is the subject of the use of alcohol and show them how the Bible is so plain and a subject that most of them have such strong feelings about. Ecclesiastes 10:19, Solomon said, A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. What do you have a feast for? Laughter and celebration. What do you drink wine for? to be made merry. What does money do? It answereth all things. I mean, you got problems? If you got a raise tomorrow, your problems would be less. And if the raise was big enough, you'd have no problems. Naturally speaking, Solomon speaking complete truth in this verse. How many times do we get frustrated with our spouses because the money's a little tight? And it creates overall tightness in the whole family. But when there's lots of money around, and we're taking the wife out often enough, and we're buying enough things for the kids, and we're making our payments, and there's still some left over for Dad. Hey, there are no problems, are there? It answereth all things, generally speaking. That's Ecclesiastes 10.19. Look at Zechariah 10.7. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 7. Zechariah 10.7 says, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. What causes the heart to rejoice? Wine does. 
Now, a number of things rejoice the heart, but wine was specifically designated for that purpose by God. Food rejoices the heart. I mean, after a good meal, don't you feel better? After a good-tasting meal, you feel better. It makes your heart merry. But wine can get the job done a lot sooner with a lot fewer calories. Now, does God authorize the use of wine for that end? We, we, I've given you four references that say that wine makes glad the heart of man, it cheers the heart of God and man, wine maketh merry, and it rejoices the heart. Nowhere can you read about wine tasting good. Now, some people develop a taste for wine. People develop a taste for a lot of things. But wine wasn't designed for its taste. Wine was designed for its effect. And let me remind you about the production of wine. Can you make wine stronger than 15% alcohol? No, it's impossible. When the alcohol reaches that level, it kills the yeast. The that kills the yeast that is in the wine, which is causing the fermentation, and it quits. Most wine won't even get to 15. Depends on the type of grape. That's amazing, isn't it? How God made wine. You have to doctor it up to get it stronger than 15%. Now, it said that he had a merry heart. And the merry heart was caused by wine. But does that mean he was drunk? No, it does not mean that. And we need not assume that. Come now to Deuteronomy 14.26. Every one of you ought to memorize this one verse to justify the use of wine. Deuteronomy 14.26. I wish I had lived in the days of Billy Sunday. I'd have set up my own tent in town. Amen. And we'd have preached from Deuteronomy 14 and verse 26. This, this, to me, is the most incredible verse in the Bible on this subject. Beginning at verse 21, down through 27, are the Lord's instructions on how He wants to be worshipped. After harvest, when you're loaded with dough, with, with, with produce, you were to go to Jerusalem and celebrate God's blessing. Now, if it was a long trip, God didn't expect you to fill your pickup with wheat because it'd be too heavy to carry. So he said, sell your wheat for money. Take the money. That's in verse 24. If the way be too long for thee or you're not able to carry it all, sell it for money, put the cash in your pocket, hitchhike to Jerusalem or wherever you're, wherever the, you're supposed to worship God. In this case, the place where God's going to set his name. It was Shiloh originally. It was Jerusalem later. Verse 24, the end of verse 24. When you get to Jerusalem, verse 25, thou shalt turn it into money and bind up the money in thine hand, shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Now you're in Jerusalem with money, verse 26, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. And we're going to come back after that word because we need another lesson from Esther chapter 1. And thou shalt bestow thy money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. For oxen, okay, have a steak. Or for sheep, okay, have lamb chops. Or for wine, or for strong drink, have some vodka. Or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. Isn't that amazing? The worship of God included steak, lamb chops, wine, and strong drink, whatever you want to make that. 
Beer, friends, is not strong drink. <laughs> Beer is the same as wine. This, why don't men read this verse when they talk about alcohol? This is the worship of God. He wants us to celebrate. He made, what did he make oxen for? Listen, he made them for the stakes. What did he make the wine for? To make glad your heart. And when you've got your belly full of steak and your heart is merry with wine or strong drink, does it help rejoicing? Yes, it's how people celebrate and it's the way they've celebrated for 6,000 years since God put Adam and Eve on this earth. How do you celebrate? You pop a cork and you drink something that makes you feel good physically because God gives us physical blessings. Well, I read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God giveth us richly all things to enjoy, and that includes steak, bread, and wine, and women, and song. All those things are given to man to enjoy. And it's a Pharisee who tries to get up and preach this religion. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Colossians chapter 2. That's Pharisee religion. Don't you touch that. Don't you taste that. Can't handle that. Now, there are limitations. And I preach the limitations, don't I? Try to get drunk and see how long you last a member of this congregation. Get stopped in the highway and have your breathalyzer test register you as drunk and have that hit the papers and see if you can cry enough to save your soul in this congregation. You're gone. Drinking, the Bible is so plain about the subject of wine and strong drink that to drink it for its taste, you're missing the whole purpose God created it for. Now let me put it in practical terms. What the world calls a buzz is what God intends by the use of wine. Remember when I preached two sermons to you called The Christian Alcohol? I went through every passage in the Bible that describes a drunken person, and we outlined all the characteristics of a drunk. Remember that? I mean, what, 30 verses or something? 30 different characteristics of a drunken man? A buzz, or that merry feeling in the heart, or that feeling of relaxation has nothing at all to do with drunkenness. Every time you pop a Tylenol, friends, you're getting about the same effect as a glass or two of wine. Why do you think it, or uh, ActiFed? Why do you think it says in the back of an ActiFed, don't drive after taking one? Because you're doing the same thing to yourself that a glass of wine does as far as relaxing your senses. And then people will condemn for drinking a glass of wine and they'll sit around popping ActiFeds, which has the same effect on your mind. When we read Esther chapter 1 and it says Ahasuerus' heart was merry because of drinking wine, we don't jump to the conclusion he was drunk. We jump to the conclusion that he had all his senses there. What other kind of a man would write a law that wouldn't compel anyone to drink? You know what drunkards want others to do around them. They want them to drink and get drunk and act stupid just like themselves. Ahasuerus did not want that to happen. Ahasuerus did not ask Vashti to come before him in a G-string. He asked Vashti to come before him with the crown royal on. She was coming as the queen of state, not as some nude exhibition. 
read what the Bible says, and then make it agree with the type of man we've already read about Ahasuerus. And when we go on to read in that first chapter of Esther, we're going to find that the first thing he does after she refuses, he turns to the law. He asks his counselors, what do you recommend I should do based on the law? A drunken man does not appeal to law. A drunken man reacts based on emotion or feeling. And he was very angry. But does it say he did anything on that anger? No. He asked his wise counselors what he should do. He sought counsel. A drunken man doesn't do that generally. Before I leave this subject, however, I'll always add my little reminder of what the Bible does say about wine. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Someone drinking a glass of wine is not deceived by it. Someone who's drank three glasses of wine when they should only have had one and a half has been deceived if they drink that thinking they can handle it. If you think for a minute that you can handle any amount of alcohol or you get too close to the line where you know you shouldn't pass, you are a fool and have been deceived by that substance. And someone will say, well, if that, if that substance is that dangerous, we ought not to touch it. Friends, cherry cheesecake has about the same effect on me. I can, I can be deceived by cherry cheesecake. I mean, it's in and it's down before I realize I ate too much. Haven't you ever done that? You've eaten a meal so fast, and you've eaten so much, then all of a sudden you realize that if you were popped with a pen, you'd blow up. Now, why did it happen? Because it deceived you. You weren't careful in your eating. A lot of things are that way in life. Wine is a mocker and it can deceive, so be careful. When does wine mock a person? When they drink a glass? Wine can only mock a person when they're drunk, and then you're a fool. So the substance has turned you into an idiot and it's mocking you. When is strong drink raging? When does a person go into a rage? When they're out of control with the substance. That's talking about drunkenness in Proverbs 20 and verse 1. And it can certainly cause sexual sin, which, you know, some would accuse Ahasuerus of. Habakkuk 2.15 does say, Woe unto him that gives strong drink to his neighbor. Is that all it says? No. To uncover their nakedness. If you give drink to your neighbors to uncover their nakedness, you know, then you've committed a crime. But if you give a drink to your neighbor, there's nothing wrong in the world with that. I mean, the Bible is filled with giving wine to people. I mean, Jesus Christ did that at the wedding in Canaan, John chapter 2. But if you do it for a false motive, like the daughters of Lot did with their father in the cave, they made their father drunk so that they could lay with him and commit incest. That is the sin. Drunkenness is the sin, where men do things they otherwise would not do. But the substance itself is not wrong. Now, I'll begin another point, and then we'll finish it this, this evening. In Esther chapter 1, Esther chapter 1, I'll just take a minute here. We need to deal with verse 12. Verse 10, when it says, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that doesn't prove a thing. 
That just proves he was happy, and he had got happy with wine. It doesn't tell us he was drunk. Now, the Bible, when it uses that expression, sometimes does mean they were drunk. Nabal's heart was merry with wine in 1 Samuel 25 and about verse 36, because it says he was very drunk. But Boaz, who was a very righteous man and who spoke very soberly when he was awoken by Ruth, says also that he had a merry heart. But verse 12 says, The queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Now, why did she refuse? It is often taught from verse 11, because Ahasuerus was in a drunken stupor, and he wanted his wife to come out, dressed immodestly, in front of 127 leering princes and other men that were there. Now, remember my position. The Bible doesn't condemn Ahasuerus, does it? Can you bring a woman out in public for men to see her beauty? Did God bless Ahasuerus after this event? Yes. Let me show you a few verses on this subject. A woman who looks beautiful and men who admire that beautiful woman have not necessarily sinned. Listen, is there any woman here this morning that rolled out of bed and came the way you were? Come on. My, the jokes that go around about the number of bathrooms you need in the house relative to the number of women are legion. What are they doing in there? Not using it for its primary purpose. They're in there using that piece of glass called a mirror. Why? They want to make themselves attractive. Now, if we're going to jump on poor Ahasuerus here, guess who else we have to jump on this morning? Every one of you husbands who brought your wife other than the way she crawled out of bed. Don't we? Since we're not told anything more about what she was wearing, she was going to wear the crown. Now, most times, strippers don't wear crowns. When you're, dignit when you're a dignitary like Vashti. Listen, she was a beautiful woman. He wanted her to put the crown on so that she'd be recognized as the queen of Persia. Guess who that meant was her man? The man who was throwing the feast. What in the world is wrong with that? Have, do godly women appear beautiful in public? Or do godly women wear lampshades so that no one can tell that they're either a woman or they're beautiful? What do you want to bet this morning? Sarah is presented in 1 Peter chapter 3 as an example of a godly woman, is she not? And that if you follow her example, you do well. That's what it says. Let's look at poor Sarah. Poor, doughty Sarah. How about Genesis chapter 12? Genesis chapter 12. Now, if I get a little sarcastic on this subject, I am, I am as upset about this subject as I am the subject of alcohol. I am so tired of this touch-not, taste-not, handle-not, and look-not philosophy of Phariseeism. God made women beautiful. Do you know why he made them beautiful? To look at. You say, but he only made them beautiful for their husbands. 
Well, then why don't they get married and then God performs some operation on them where they become beautiful? How do you pick a wife? Song of Solomon will tell you. I mean, beauty is not last on the list. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, since you wear such dowdy clothing, and you're covered so completely, no one will know that you're beautiful, therefore I'll call you my wife. Is that what he said? No, he said, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Wait a minute. Who's going to be looking upon her? I thought that was only the husband's right. Verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. Now, if you go look up in a Bible story book and try to get a picture of Sarah, she'll be wrapped up in so many clothes you won't know if she's a mannequin or a woman. But did, 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 did these Egyptians know? I mean, just thinking about Sarah. Did these Egyptians know she was beautiful? Surely they did. Did Abraham know she was going to be beautiful? Yes. You did not wear so much clothing that you couldn't tell a woman was beautiful. She was very fair to look upon, and the Egyptians did see her, and they beheld her, and she was a very fair woman. She is an example to godly women. Was this the only time it happened in her life? No, he had to pull the same thing in the land of the Philistines when he had Sarah lie to Abimelech. And guess what happened there? She was so good-looking, Abimelech took her to be his wife. And God appeared to him in a vision and said, You're a dead man. <laughs> and he said, Lord, I didn't know she was a man's wife. Well, why did he take her to be his wife? Listen, she was a knockout. That's what. And you know what? Other men could see that. And do you know what? Abraham, the friend of God, allowed other men to see that. Now, get what I'm saying and don't run to some crazy, foolish, sinful excess. We're not talking about immodesty. There are private parts that are only for a husband to see. And the Bible talks about that so many times when it says you're not to uncover your father's skirt, you're not to uncover your neighbor's skirt. There are parts of a woman that are only for the husband. But in general... A man wants his wife to look good in public. And do you know how I know that? I don't see any women that look like they just rolled out of bed. Every man in here wants his wife to look as good, fine as she possibly can, yet modestly. Yet modestly. We have got to quit for this morning. This evening we're going to take up with this. There is a lot the Bible has to say on this particular subject. And we'll look at some other women who appeared beautiful in Scripture. Before I leave this sermon, though, I want to say, when the Bible says that women ought to adorn themselves, 
And the ador word adorn doesn't mean just drape. I mean, adorn means to make yourself look decent. Adorn yourself, and you do it with modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety. If a woman can learn to be attractive, beautiful, and shamefaced, and sober, and do it modestly, what a queen. What an example to the rest of the world. Instead of the women's libbers, who don't think they ought to ever look good for a man because they ought not to be looked at by men, and instead of by those who want to dress immodestly, we can have some Christian women who look attractive because God made them that way, and they adorn themselves carefully, yet they do it with modesty, they do it with a shamed face that is not a forward face, and they do it with sobriety. Sarah was a godly woman. I mean, she's the same woman that called her husband Lord. I'll bet she was sober. I'll bet she was shamefaced, based on what the Scripture tells us to follow her. And I'll bet she was dressed modestly. Abraham wouldn't have taken her down there half nude. But she was dressed in an attractive way. And I don't care where you turn in Scripture, wherever it talks about a woman's apparel, wherever it talks about a woman's apparel, they're attractive. It doesn't matter whether it's Abraham's servant picking out Rebecca or whether it's Jacob finding Rachel at the well. I mean, the women were good-looking, and it was obvious, and the men looked, and the men appreciated their beauty. But, you know, and I'll say this again, just like there is a ditch on both sides of the road with alcohol, there's a ditch on both sides of the road relative to women's apparel. You better dress modestly. You better not be drawing undue attention to certain parts of your physical attractiveness that are reserved for your husband. But otherwise, a man's proud of his good-looking wife. I mean, why do you think he married her in the first place? Because he, was, he appreciated the beauty that God gave her. We will deal more with this tonight. Remember Ruth, the virtuous woman? When she, meant to, when she went to meet Boaz, what did she do? She took a bath, she anointed herself, and she put on a dress. She prepared herself to be attractive to Boaz. Not a thing in the world wrong with that. It's just like everything else in Christian experience, and I mean everything else. We have to walk down the road of moderation between ditches on both sides, and this world will give us examples and will tempt us to hit either ditch. And the hardest job in the world is to hit that middle but friends, my ministry stands on this. I ain't going to preach either ditch. I'm not going to preach one ditch because I think it's better than the other ditch. I'm going to preach that middle of the road. And I'm going to preach that women ought to look attractive in public. And I'm going to preach just as hard against you trying to look immodest. Or you thinking that it's not your place for men to think you're beautiful. I'm going to preach on the moderate use of alcohol. That we ought to use it to rejoice before the Lord. I'm going to preach just as hard against touch not, taste not religion, and I'm going to preach just as hard against drunkenness and the abuse of that same substance. May God bless us to walk the very straight and the very narrow way between the ditches, but let's follow the Word of God and not the ideas of men for black and white, Pharisee, touch not, taste not, handle not, 
look not religion. May God bless us. For a short word of prayer, our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee that thou art King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we can read of the events that took place in the life of Cyrus, who you surnamed, even though he did not know you, many years before he was even born, let alone come to dignity as the king of the Persian Empire. And that that king, after reading your word, submitted to that word and obeyed by commanding that your house be built in Jerusalem of Judea. For thou art God, he said, in a public proclamation mailed throughout his empire. O Lord, we worship thee, for thou art the king of kings. His kingdom was given to him by thee. O Lord, he worshiped thee from as one king to another. We praise and honor thee, O Lord, for thy greatness. Bless us now as we study thy holy word, that we might learn some things that would be no less real, applicable, and practical as what Cyrus read when Daniel showed him the last verses of Isaiah 44 and the first verses of Isaiah 45. Grant that we shall take them as seriously. Through Jesus Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.